You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, I'm going to take the plunge and say, yes, we're ready to start. And thank you all for coming out tonight to our SF and SF reading series. Um, my name is Rena Weissman. I'm a board member of Variety Children's Charity, in whose preview room you're sitting. Uh, the charity very graciously lets us have the use of the room for our SF and SF events. And in return, as you might have known, because I think I've asked each and every one of you what you wanted to drink, we have a little bar out there, and the proceeds from the bar and tips go directly to the charity. And I'm very happy to announce, I think we've been here now close to two years, um, starting la a year ago, January, and since that time, we've given over $9,000 to Variety Children's Charity uh, from selling booze. So they're very happy with us and it's a business model that seems to work so they've tried copying us but they don't serve whiskey so we have that going for us anyhow i'm also with tachyon publications who underwrites the sf and sf series um, we've also recently thanks to cheryl morgan who is here tonight uh, relaunched our website at uh, sfnsf.org and it's very pretty we had artist mike dashow design a logo for us and it's now a fully functional kind of multimedia website with info on our author series, our film series, and the newsletter that I do bi-monthly. Um, you may have noticed a sign-up sheet out in front, and if you want to add your email addresses to that, you'll get notices about our events and all sorts of literary um, SFF horror and genre related events in the Bay Area. Um, which leads me to the big announcement I have. Um, we were very happy to be selected uh, by Litquake to um, present a science fiction event for their festival coming in October called, coincidentally, Litquake, uh, which some of you may have heard of. Um, we'll be doing a standalone event on Thursday, October 9th, and we're very pleased to announce that it will be a steampunk themed night. And our guests, uh, the authors that night that we'll be hosting, along with Terry Bisson here as moderator, will be Joe Lansdale, Rudy Rucker, and Cage Baker. Very flashlight. Yeah. <laughs> so we're very, very excited to, to host them. And there'll be more information upcoming on both our website and Litquake's website. So mark your calendars. And I will turn this over to Terry Bisson. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, as she said, this is uh, SF and SF has been going for a couple of years. What we try to do is get authors who are in the field of science fiction, fantasy, horror, ge the general genre of SF, and uh, present them to the San Francisco literary scene and also provide a venue for discussion and people getting together and talking about science fiction. So without further, uh, also I want to remind people, as I usually do, to Please turn on your cell phones in case you get a better offer this <laughs> evening. And uh, I'd like to introduce our first, we have two readers this evening, as I'm sure you know. Our first, how many uh, authors were physicians? We all think of Chekhov. We think of William Carlos Williams. And who else? Michael <laughs> Who else? Is that it? Celine. What, he was a, a physician? Oh, Crichton. Yes, I hadn't even thought of Crichton. Okay. Well, that's kind of... George Thomas. 
Well, Lewis Tunnels wasn't a fiction writer, more or less. But anyway, all right, well, we'll save that for the discussion, which we have uh, after the next reader. This author wrote XY, which has been made into a Sundance or Slam Dance film. His latest book, which is an exploration of a healthcare system, a zero-sum healthcare system, you might say, and published one of the first books in the new Peers series, which has done quite well. And without further ado, I would like to welcome one of our local stars and a good friend, Michael, Dr. Michael Blumline, author Michael Blumline. Thank you, thank you, Terry. Thank you, and thank you all for coming. So tonight I'm going to read from a, a brand new story that I, that I, uh, I just finished a few days ago. I hardly ever do that because I'm just a, uh, I'm, I'm kind of crazy obsessive about rewriting and finishing things, putting them away, and, and then looking at them later. But I really wanted to read this here. So uh, unfortunately, I can, it's, it's longer than I expected. I thought I was going to be able to read the whole thing, but I'm really only going to read just about half of it. Um, and if you want to read um, the whole thing, all you, um, there'll be, there's a, uh, gonna, there's um, Jude who's handling the book table out there. We'll have a sign-up sheet. So if you care, you want to find out what happens, the what I like to think of as the stunning conclusion, <laughs> um, put your email address there if you have one, and I'll, I'll email you the, the story. Uh, I'll actually, what I'll email you is the full version of the story, because what you're going to hear tonight is not only just part of it, it's also slightly abridged. In the interest of time, partly, but also as I was writing it, I heard that two renowned actors of the stage were actually going to be in town for this night. Um, and I happened to know them through, through various uh, means, and, and they offered actually to join me in this reading. Uh, and I couldn't turn it down. And so I also edited it slightly um, in the interest of dramatic tension and suspense and to allow them to, to join me. So um, without further ado, th I'd, I'd like to invite them on, up to the stage. This Lionel Barrymore is here. <laughs> and Ethel Barrymore is here. <laughs> oh, one last thing. Um, in, in the time that this story, uh, during the time this story takes place, there's a lot of forest fires going on, and there's just, and most of that's been written out for tonight's reading, but there are a few mentions, so that's what that's about. The guy at the crematorium said it would take about three hours. A little less if he was lean, a little more if he was fat, as fat burns slower. Which is why it's so hard to get rid of, he added, patting his ample belly. He was a congenial man of a different congeniality than the people at the mortuary who were hushed, respectful, and reserved. The sort of people whose every mannerism and facial expression assured you it was perfectly all right to get emotional, to rend your clothes, pound your fists, sob till your throat was raw. They were all for showing your grief. And if you didn't, you felt a little embarrassed as if you hadn't performed up to par. 
And if you did, you also felt embarrassed for making such a fuss. The difference being that in the latter case, you felt you'd done the right thing. Greg, the crematorium guy, was not reserved at all. He was the opposite, chatty and matter-of-fact. Fat burned slower, he explained, because it had more calories than muscle. You could get it to burn faster by raising the temperature in the oven, but then you ran the risk of blackening the air with smoke and pollution, which were no-nos these days. There was a box in the room we were in. The box, I should say. Six feet long, one foot high, it sat on a gurney, and without so much as a word of explanation or warning, Greg lifted the lid. I was determined to be cool. It didn't turn out that way. My stomach lurched and I choked back emotion. The box was plain and anonymous, but the bag inside was body-shaped. My father's name was printed in large letters, once at the foot of the bag and once at the head. There was a tag with a number that Greg removed for me to check against the number on a form I had. I was shaken by the side of the bag and so relieved that he hadn't opened it and asked me to identify the body that I barely gave the number a glance. Dad's name was on the bag not once but twice, and that was good enough for me. And even if by some fluke it was someone else, who would ever know? Ashes were ashes. A little more weight-wise if you were big, a little less if you were small but quality-wise the same, a kind of gritty mixture of the soft ash of fully combusted flesh and organs combined with the coarse ash of bone. This, according to Greg, who was free with the info. Gold and silver fillings that might identify a person vaporized and personal prosthetic devices like knees and hips and artificial heart valves were confiscated as, as potentially biohazardous and not included in the remains. There was a stainless steel tray where the bones that hadn't crumbled completely in the heat were pulverized by hand, then fed along with the rest through a funnel-shaped sieve, rather like sifting flour to get a more homogeneous blend. Attached to the tray was a container half-filled with blackened metal prosthetic parts, like jewelry, but scorched. Of everything I had seen so far, this was the most disturbing. Strange how the mind works. I didn't flinch, for example, when he raised the door of the brick-lined oven and again without a word pushed my father in. I didn't flinch when the door snapped closed. And as the gas ignited with a soft hiss, I watched the temperature needle slowly rise without emotion. Perhaps it was this composure of mine that made Greg veer from normal procedure. Perhaps he admired me for it. Or maybe he thought that something was subtly wrong. At any rate, after the body was in the oven for a while, he opened the door. The cardboard coffin was on fire, somber red flames punctuated by bright curlicues of yellow. Centered almost exactly in the middle was the dark globe of my father's skull. He'd been bald in life, and I recognized the shape. It was him, and not only that, he seemed at peace. By which I mean it comforted me to think that. The flames appeared to be cradling him. They licked at his head, but had not yet set it on fire, as though to honor him, his life, his achievements, his spirit, by not consuming him too fast. I left the crematorium at 8 a.m. and called at 1 to pick up the remains. I was told to call back later. I called again at 2, and then at 3, and then 4. 
Greg said it was taking longer than expected. I asked if there was a problem. Sometimes the ovens act up, he said, don't heat like they're supposed to. Which means what, that he can't be cremated? Oh, he'll be cremated all right. It just takes longer. Why don't you call back in a few hours? Can you fix it? Fix it? The oven. There was a pause as if this was not exactly the right question. Sure, we fix them all the time. So tonight then, I can pick them up tonight? Right, tonight. Call back, everything will be fine. As it turned out, everything wasn't fine. Not by nine that night when the swing shift guy suggested I call back in the morning, and not by the morning. I got Greg again, a guy whom in the short time I'd known him I'd come to more or less trust. He was straight with me and not unfeeling. It's not the oven, sorry man. What do you mean? My boss wants to talk to you. You talk to me, what do you mean it's not the oven? He'll explain. Just tell me, please. He was a decent guy. He cared about his job, and in this case, his job meant caring for me. My father, it seemed, did not want to burn. His skin and nails and organs, yes, but they were gone. But his bones, no. Somehow, they had resisted 24 hours of 1,300-degree heat and flame. Greg had never seen anything like it. His boss, however, had. He'd been in the business more than 20 years and had seen, in his words, a little bit of everything. At another time, I might have been interested in what he meant by this. But this wasn't another time. What's the problem with my father's bones? He was leaning against the front edge of his desk, his shirt collar open, his thick, calloused hands on his thighs. He looked like he might have been a fighter at one time. His face was carefully composed. They don't want to burn, he said. And why is that? I wish I had an answer. We gave it all we got. Greg mentioned something about the oven, thought maybe it was acting up. Nothing wrong with the oven. We just had it serviced. It's working fine. But this is what you do, right? You cremate bodies? 29 years, he said. But not mine. I meant my father's, of course. He rubbed his thighs as if to clean his hands or expel something. It reminded me of my father in his hospital bed just a few days before he died, picking at his gown over and over at a thread or piece of lint or something that no one else could see, something that simply wasn't there, then tossing it over the side of the bed. I took his hand and held it, but he pulled it away, so I sat beside him and watched, transfixed and disturbed by what he was doing. There was no purpose to it. He wasn't himself. Or rather, he was. Who else could he be? And the purpose of this repetitive and disconcerting activity was hidden to me. I'm fully prepared to give you your money back, the man said. And then what? You can use it to bury him. My father actually had suggested this, that he be buried when the time came. But my mother was opposed. Her mind was set on cremation. She wanted to scatter his ashes and be done. She didn't want a grave to have to visit. Her mother and father, whom she adored, were buried in graves, and she didn't enjoy the feelings that visiting them stirred up in her. She didn't like being tied to her loved ones in that particular way. Ever the gentleman, my father had agreed, so burial was not an option. You said you'd seen this before, I said. One time, six, seven years ago, we were using higher temperatures, 
Didn't matter, same thing. So this is not unheard of? No. It happens a lot? He shrugged. It happens. I had to sign some papers, and then he punched a number into the phone. A minute later, Greg came through the door. He was carrying a plain cardboard box about the size of a crate of oranges. He placed it on the desk. It took me a moment to understand what it contained. I packed them real good, nice and smug. There shouldn't be any problem with shifting or, or rubbing or slippage. He stared at his feet, hesitating. The top I wrapped separate, and I put it in a bag just in case, you know, you don't want to look at it. The top? His hand drifted up to his head. Suddenly, I didn't feel so well. I made an inventory, just so you know. It's on a piece of paper in an envelope. I was afraid to ask what he meant by inventory. His boss, however, felt obliged to explain. The ashes, what there were of them, which wasn't much, were in a small plastic bag. The bones, every single one of them, were packed separately according to size and shape, not to how they fit together naturally. So I might not recognize which was which, which is why we made the list, he said. I nodded, but I barely heard a word. I was thinking of my poor mother. I was thinking of my father's skull. I was also trembling. I felt like a little boy being asked to be brave. My father, I sensed, was watching, not unsympathetically. He more than anyone would have understood. Inventory? You gotta be kidding. There was no way I was opening that box. But I did have to take it. At first I put it beside me in the passenger seat, but after a block or two I moved it to the back. That was still too close, and a few blocks later I put it in the trunk. When it comes to disposing of a person's ashes, it seems it's hard to go wrong. You can toss them to the wind, spread them around and dig them into the ground, charter a boat and scatter them at sea. You can do it as soon as you get them from the crematorium. You can wait a month or a year, keeping them in an urn or a box, in private or in plain view on a shelf. You can keep them forever and never dispose of them at all. By some common decree, ashes are immune to misuse. But what about bones? I put them in the living room on a side table. I tried to ignore them and go about my business, but I couldn't. No matter where I looked, the box was always there. This was not good, not good at all. What was I going to tell my mother? That was a Monday. On Tuesday, two men appeared at my door. One was tall, the other stocky and broad. The stocky one was in his late 30s or early 40s, roughly my age. The other one was a good 20 years older. They were dressed conservatively in suits and ties. They introduced themselves and said how sorry they were to hear of my father's death. I thanked them and asked how they knew them. We didn't know him personally. The older one, Michael, said. Felt like we did. Said the other one, whose name was Neil. It was nice what they said in the paper. Good man. Exceptional. Outstanding. I wish I had known him. A fine man all around. The younger one, Neil, handed me a card. We were wondering if we could have a moment of your time. I looked at the card, then him. Bereavement counselor? He frowned. His buddy Michael snatched the card out of my hand, read it, then narrowed his eyes. Wrong card. He told Neil. 
who stammered something and blushed. He's only been doing this a little while. He explained to me, returning the card to Neil, who pocketed it, fished out his wallet, and withdrew another one. After a moment's hesitation, he offered it to me, but Michaels took it first. He examined it, gave a little nod, looked me in the eye in a friendly sort of way, and passed it on. This one read, Department of Public Health. <laughs> Which one are you? Uh, we're health officers. We received a notice of an irregularity. We're following up. Strictly routine, nothing to worry about. Larry, why would he worry? He wouldn't, like I said. We know it's a difficult time, but we'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you have a minute? It won't take long. Is there a problem? No problem. None at all. Routine visit. We'll be gone before you know it. The two of them stood there for a while, not looming exactly, but not going away. At length, Michael said, May we come in? I opened the door wider. Then I remembered the box. Hold on a minute. I hurried to the living room, picked it up, and carried it to my bedroom. But the bedroom seemed too obvious, which was a strange thought to have, unless, like me, the only thing stronger than your trust in authority is your distrust of it. My apartment is small, and all that was left was the kitchen. The box didn't fit in the oven, and hastily I stowed it under the sink. Something cooking? Michael asked when I returned. Cooking? In the kitchen. You guys want coffee? They didn't, and I ushered them into the living room. Under Michael's watchful eye, Neil began. Again, our condolences. Thank you. We understand your father passed away unexpectedly and rather fast. For some reason, that irked me. He was 12 days in the hospital and nearly 90 years old. Is that fast? And of unknown causes. Like I said, he was 90. But not especially sick before he went into the hospital, say a day or two before? No, not especially. He nodded in a knowing sort of way, then cleared <coughs> his throat. Forgive me for asking, but did you consider doing an autopsy? No, I didn't. Any particular reason why not? In fact, the thought had occurred to me, but only briefly. He was 90, after all. I don't see how it would have helped. How about your mother? Did she want one? My mother. I, th I thought of her expression the day she came in and he didn't recognize her or anyone, the day he became delirious. How her face had crumpled and her eyes had teared up, and she couldn't speak except in little sobs. And how after a minute she gathered herself and sat beside him, taking his hand in hers and speaking to him in a calm, reassuring, almost chatty voice, reminding him who and where he was, affectionately chiding him for not knowing. The 11 days between his entering the hospital and his dying were for me a blur, but for my mother I think it was the opposite. Time slowed to a crawl. She was not shocked or surprised when he died. She was relieved more than anything, both for his sake and for hers. She'd known him for 60-odd years, and no autopsy would have enabled her to know him any better or changed how she felt. No, she didn't want an autopsy either. Interesting. Why is that interesting? What Mr. Neal means is you can understand our interest from a public health standpoint, rapid death, unknown cause. There is a cause. The cause was old age. He regarded me for a few seconds, then inclined his head. It gets the best of us. Why don't we leave it at that? I do have another question. I was beginning to grow impatient. Neil especially was getting on my nerves. It has to do with his bones. What about them? Uh, we understand there was a problem. 
word gets around. Again, it's a regulatory matter. The crematorium is required to inform us of any unusual occurrence. I replied that it wasn't that unusual. It had happened before. Has it? That's what the man said, not often. But then my father didn't always do things the conventional way. This was a light-hearted comment. I meant nothing by it, and Michaels let it slide. But Neil was the sort of man who saw meaning and motive everywhere. What do you mean by that? I was joking. He oh. frowned and gave a bogus laugh. Oh, I see. Ha, you mean your father was, un was conventional? Sometimes. Sometimes not. He was unpredictable? I wouldn't say that. In the end, how would you describe him then? He was delirious. Yes, that's what the hospital notes say. He wasn't himself. Did he talk to you? He was babbling. About? Nothing. It was nonsense. Could you understand it? Sometimes. Most of the time, not. Could you be more specific? You couldn't understand the words, or the words were put together in a way you didn't understand? I don't know. Both, I suppose. Can you remember any of them, any of the words? Not really. Did you recognize any? Had he said them before? Some of them, sure. The ones you didn't know? What's this have to do with his bones? Bear with us for just a moment. We're almost done. Did any of the words sound foreign? I don't remember. He bumbled a lot. Had he ever acted that way before? No, never. He never behaved unusually, like, say, someone you didn't know. A stranger. Did you ever think of your father like that? I'd had enough, especially of him. Do you have a father? Is that a yes or a no? It's a question. If you don't know the answer, maybe I can help. Let's, let's get back to his bones. We'd like to have a look at them. Would you? And why is that? Because we're public health officials. And it's the law, said Neil, although the look he got from Michaels made me wonder if he'd made that up. Why are you so interested? Is there some danger to the public, some sort of health risk? We won't know until we examine them. But what's the likelihood, really? I couldn't say. I suspected he could. Moreover, I began to feel the need to defend my father, as though his honor and integrity were at stake. Look, they've cooked for a whole day at more than a thousand degrees. Is there anything you know of that survives that kind of heat for that long? Anything that could possibly harm anybody? There was a pause. Somehow the word harm changed the whole tenor of the conversation. Neil glanced at Michaels, who wore a grave expression, then at me. If you don't mind, we'd like a look. They're not here. Where are they? With nary a moment of hesitation, I came up with a brilliant riposte. Somewhere else. <laughs> Neil started to reply, but Michael stopped him. Can you arrange for us to see them? When? Tomorrow, say. I was out of snappy rejoinders. <laughs> Tomorrow it is. Excellent. We'll see you in the morning. What is it about health officials that leaves you feeling anxious, worried, vulnerable, sick to your stomach, sweaty, itchy, and insecure. Bacteria in the food supply, pesticides in the water supply, smoke in the air supply, obesity, cigarettes, heart disease, depression. It's a dangerous world out there, hazards everywhere. And these functionaries seem to delight in reminding us of this, bludgeoning us with statistics and sharing, if not manufacturing, the most alarming trends. But how bad really is it? The people I see look like people I've seen all my life, only more of them, and I have to say, on the whole, they look better. Take my father, for example. He used to smoke like nearly everyone his age, then he stopped. Then he got fat, like ex-smokers do, then he got rid of the fat. He looked good when he was 70, he looked good when he was 80, and he looked pretty good for an 89-year-old. 
all the way up to the last two weeks of his life. A stranger? Yes, he was, in those final few days. And before? Who isn't a stranger to some degree, even to his closest companions? I knew my father as a son, but what did I know of him as a husband, or a friend, or a son himself? What secrets did he have? And what thoughts and experiences that weren't secrets at all, merely too pedestrian and numerous to mention, or too far in the past, too dim to remember? Of course he was a stranger. On some level, we're all strangers to each other. But I feared those men meant something more. After they left and I calmed down, I called my mother. Some friends were making a condolence call so she couldn't talk long. She asked how I was doing, which is how she starts every conversation, and I told her everything was fine. How about you? How are you? Everyone's being very nice, she said. Are you sleeping? Not too bad. I'm not eating much. I don't have much of an appetite. Are you eating anything at all? Some soup. I had a piece of toast. You'll be fine, Mom. But everybody's bringing things. Chicken salad, meatloaf, lasagna. The food's just piling up. But you like those things. I'm not hungry, but they keep bringing them anyway. You'll be hungry later. You can freeze them. I'm not helpless. I can cook for myself. You might not feel like cooking. I could see the look on her face. It's annoying. Just so you know, I didn't die. Your father did. Grieving for my mother was a relatively new condition, but being aggrieved was not. The latter for her was sometimes an expression of discontent, but more often of worry, which itself was an expression of fear. What she feared most was losing something her independence, her self-control, someone she loved. In this case, she had lost all those things to one degree or another, and I did my best to reassure her. We made a plan to see each other the next day, and I hung up, relieved temporarily, to have avoided the subject of my father. The brush fire nearby had been contained, but new fires had broken out, and I stayed inside that afternoon and watched the news. I also made some calls and searched the internet on the subject of bones. Bone conditions, bone diseases, skeletons, burials, decomposition, cremation. I learned that in acromegaly the bones are unusually thick. And in something called osteogenesis imperfecta, unusually thin and fragile. I learned that the monks of a certain Catholic sect in Rome collected the bones of their brethren and made sculptures out of them. I learned many fascinating facts, but nothing that helped me in the matter of my father. His bones were still under the kitchen sink, an ignoble hiding place. But the living room was too exposed, and call me squeamish, but I didn't want him in the bedroom. So I left them where they were and said goodnight, paused, then said, I'm sorry about this, Dad. Paused again, then said, I miss you, Dad. Turned, turned back and said, I love you, Dad, then went to bed. In the morning, the air was thick with smoke. I could barely see across the street. The sun was a blur, and a film of ashes covered everything. I decided for the time being to leave my father's remains where they were. My mother, of course, had to be told, and I was thinking about that when the doorbell rang. It was Neil and Michael's again. I was nonplussed. I'd called and left a message to change our date the night before. Didn't you get it? Did you get a message? Did you? 
When did you leave it? Last night. What number? I don't know. The number you gave me. The one on the card. That's funny. Maybe you punched it in wrong. I've done that plenty of times. It's not as easy as it looks. Those little pads, those tiny little phones. Not easy at all. Anybody can make a mistake. Don't worry about it. Not for a second. Please, do us that favor. Not worth the trouble. That's what I'm saying. Stuff happens. Am I right? you got to be kidding all the time. Like yesterday. Yesterday's a case in point. You probably thought we were stringing you along. Lying to you. Lying is strong, Larry. Misinforming you then. Not laying our cards on the table. Maybe you thought that. You didn't trust us. You weren't sure who we were or what to do. You got a lot on your mind, a lot of feelings. You didn't trust yourself. You had the bones, but you didn't want to tell us. You thought it was disrespectful to your dad. You weren't sure what to think. You wanted to help, but you didn't want to do the wrong thing. That's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head, Mike. He wanted to help just like he wants to help now. He wants to help, but he doesn't want to make a mistake. He doesn't want to blow it like before. With the phone, the wrong number. The phone, the information, the car, whatever. What about the car? The car, what's wrong with it? He's asking about the car. What about it? What's the deal, is something wrong? You said car. No, sir, I did not. He did. He said it was you. Interesting. Maybe he didn't hear you right. It's possible. Mistakes happen. Can you hear me now? I heard you before. <laughs> Say it. Say what you heard before, the word. I was annoyed. This was ridiculous. Car. Not this. He made a sort of gurgling in his throat. Very brief and I have to say weird. Like water running over rocks where sometimes you think you can almost make out words. Larry, behave. Familiar? I felt like it should have been, but I shook my head. He looked disappointed. Michaels intervened. Maybe you said cart or Carl. Who's Carl? <laughs> or card, maybe card. Could have been that. Come to think of it, I was thinking about a card. He reached in his pocket, pulled out his wallet, and slid a card out. He handed it to Michaels, who glanced at it before giving it to me. <laughs> now, please, don't take this the wrong way. Advice naturally that ensures you will. I looked at it and my heart froze. You look worried. Embossed on it, in large, no-nonsense, steel blue letters were the three initials no one ever wants to see. Who among us is not guilty of something? You look worried. He does. I think he's taking it the wrong way. You told him not to. I did, but obviously we're not communicating too well. Do you understand me? Sure. <laughs> I don't talk with an accent? Not to me. And the words, they're clear? Like crystal. But there's still a fundamental problem, like a dog talking to a cat, like uh, different languages. But related. Definitely related. It happens between people. Communications difficulties. All the time. Said Michaels, taking the card from me and tearing it in half. It's not a card. It's, for, just, it's, a card. it's just a card, for Christ's sake. Anyone can make a card. What you should be looking at is the deliverer. Look at me. I did, and what I saw was not what I expected. His eyes held a depth I hadn't seen before. They were warm and, dare I say it, friendly. I was almost taken in. You want me to trust you, is that it? Sure I do. Who doesn't want that? Good cop, bad cop. Larry's not bad. He's not exactly reassuring. Viva la difference. And we're not cops. Excuse me, federal agents. You have a suspicious mind, my friend. You make me suspicious with all your questions and innuendos and your stupid cards. The cards, perhaps, were a mistake. I apologize. I nodded the one he had in his hand, torn in half like a losing lottery ticket. 
How do you expect a person to react to that? It's a problem, I admit. Those letters. We should change them. We should. They don't mean what you think. Neil said something in a rapid, fluty voice like birdsong. That's how it sounds in the native tongue, or how we think it did. It translates roughly into friends of our deceased. You're pulling my leg. We're not. What the hell is that, friends of our deceased? He rattled off some names, two or three I recognized as friends or acquaintances of my father. It's a group? Sure, a group. You could call it that. What do you do? Well, this. He gestured as though it were obvious. What? Visit people. You visit people? Sure. And talk to them? Help out? That's it? We do other stuff, too. Like what? We don't usually talk about that with outsiders. So it's a secret group? Not secret. Private. And my dad was a member. He seemed to understand how this might be troubling to me. I'm sure he was a member of other groups, too. This was true. He was a member of a number of groups, and maybe some like this one I didn't know about. So you're here on behalf of this group to help me. That's right. Fair enough. So tell me this. How is it going to help me for you to see my father's bones? We can help you decide what to do with them. Do you have a way to cremate him? No, we don't. Then I don't think you can. He protested, as did Neil, and repeated their request to see the bones. I had this to say. The message I left, the one you didn't get to change our meeting, maybe it was a bad connection. You didn't hear it right. The words were garbled. Maybe you didn't understand. I paused, expressing my regret. I'm so sorry. You're not. If you give me a number, maybe one that's more reliable, I'll call you if anything new comes up. More protests, but I was done. Neil didn't take it well. Michaels was more resigned, as though he half expected this. He handed me a new card, this one (laughs) with just a name on it, his. He lingered a moment, then suddenly and without warning reached out and gave me a hug. He said my father would be proud of me. He said to call if I changed my mind. Then he and Neil left. All right. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> let's let's take a, a, a four to five minute break. We'll redo the mics and then we have a, a, another very special reader and then we're going to have a discussion. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.